But we got a lot to cover today because we are going to do the best we can to dive into a very controversial uh, subject. And the, the, the passage of the Bible that I want to open with, I think, frames this thing rightly. So if you have your Bibles, let's start this discussion, teaching, conversation um, in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 4, verse one. We're going to look at verses one through six. And as you're turning there, I want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today because we want you to fact check everything we say up and against the scriptures. We have Bibles there at that table. They're there for you to take one home. Please do that as a gift. Here we go. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six, a great place to start on any issue that divides the church says this. I, therefore being Paul, the apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Amen. There is one body. There is one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one what? baptism, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So how about we start out this discussion by writing something down in your notes. If you'd be so kind, there's a a green insert here today. I would encourage you to write this down in it. Emmanuel, our church here affirms that there is one Lord, there is one faith and there is one baptism. And in week one of the series that we're in, this is part four of four, In week one of the series we were in, we talked about these amazing promises and blessings that are associated with baptism. And here's a list that we usually print in your bulletins about once a month. So again, you can fact check us on all of this. Baptism is connected to God's covenant promises and inward cleansing and washing away of sin and union in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit and becoming part of the church. And God wants to pour, he wants to pour these blessings on his people, baptism pun intended. But instead of uniting around this incredible invitation, we often divide over matters, especially two things, how old a person must be and how much water we should use. Even though God chose not to reveal the answers, at least explicitly, to either of those questions anywhere in the Bible. Well, baptism battles are not new. They're not new at all. In fact, in the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul, he has to write this. He writes, I'm so glad that I hardly baptized any of you because you've turned it into a thing. You've turned who baptized who into a thing. And how sad is that? Because you think about Paul and all the things he was dealing with. And you think about all the things the early church was dealing with. And here's Paul not able to celebrate baptisms that he was a part of because people had turned this into something that divided them. Now, for the record, there are times where we need to hold each other accountable to things that it says in the scriptures, guidelines that God put in place. I brought a no trespassing sign with me today to illustrate that point. Are there times where God says, this is a line that we cannot cross? Are there times? Yeah, there there are. And if we're going to be faithful to being followers of Jesus, those of us who are, there are times where we need to say, this is, this is out of step with walking with Christ and with humility and with patience and with gentleness and all those things that we just got done reading. We need to do our best to to say, Hey brother, Hey sister, this is outside 
of the, the teaching of Scripture. So there are times, Paul did that often. He called people out. May I present to you that how much water, exactly what age, with baptism isn't one of those things. And yet, in churches from the beginning, people would throw rocks at one another over, how much, how, over these different opinions on these things that the Bible doesn't spell out. And they didn't just throw stones at one another. Sometimes they would throw water at one another, literally. Um, the reason we have Bob here today, um, which <laughs> people just rip on Bob. I, I'm like, what's the deal? Anyway, we've got Bob here today because he's going to reenact for us something that is based on a true story. I can't remember who it was, but someone from Emmanuel once was telling me this true story of something that happened. So Bob is going to reenact it. So here's the reenactment. We've got Bob, and he's got his baby with him. And he's got his lovely wife, Roberta, also here today. And she's got her hair all made up. And she just looks really nice. And so what they're celebrating is they were dedicating their baby. They were dedicating their baby. So, so this is a, based on a real event. They, Bob and Roberta got done dedicating their baby. And they invited family and friends to be there for that moment. And then Uncle Joe comes up after the service. And he's got water with him. And after they just got done dedicating their baby, Uncle Joe walks up, no lie, and says, and I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And threw water on the baby. And people wonder why people don't want to hang around with church people. Can you imagine that? Instead of coming together on something as beautiful as parents bringing their kids to Jesus to dedicate this life to the Lord, this Uncle Joe character turned this into something divisive. Can you imagine how awkward that post-dedication party was? And traumatized a kid and all kinds of bad things came out of that. There's a place to write this down in your notes. And again, before we go any further, I want to make this clear. We're eager at this church to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Can I get an amen? Thank you. When the Bible puts up a no trespassing sign, we'll do our best with grace and truth to hold each other accountable to that. But when people are making choices that fall within the guardrails of Scripture, then we need to be really, really slow to throw water on what they're trying to say. In fact, around here, one of the things we're working on with our culture at this church is to view biblically informed differences as opportunities to learn from one another rather than something we need to be afraid of. But to go to the scriptures together and to say, why do you see things that way? Well, have you thought about this verse? And we together we bring all of our thoughts and, and our scriptures together and do the best we can to seek truth. Last week, Pastor Jason was charged with the task of explaining why we celebrate. Why we celebrate when kids are brought forward to be dedicated. And my job today is to do the best I can to make a case why we celebrate when people bring their infants forward to be baptized. Now, I grew up in the Lutheran tradition, so watching kids get baptized is something that I just grew up. It was normal for me to see this, but no one ever talked about why we did what we did. We just did what we did. And so when I got older, I had been baptized as an infant, and I confirmed my faith as a teenager. And then as I got older, people began to challenge me, and they said, well, Obviously, you know what you did wasn't biblical. I said, what? He said, what you did isn't biblical. And usually they, they would say there's four reasons why what you did is not biblical. And the four things that they said are that Jesus was dedicated as a child. And they said Jesus was baptized as an adult. And they said Jesus blessed the children. He never baptized them. And then they said the word 
used for baptized in the Bible means to immerse, to immerse. And I ended up saying, well, maybe what I believe isn't biblical because I never thought of those things. But what I also didn't do is fact check those four arguments. Now, for the record, there are strong arguments that you can make in favor of believer baptism. I could get up here today and make just as passionate a case for believer baptism. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that because these arguments that I just gave you aren't, um, don't fact check well, that there aren't strong ones. There are. That's why we had last week. But these arguments are so common. In fact, I've used them myself because I'm like, oh, they must be right, so I better use these arguments. I, I want to just challenge us on these four things. So here, number one, an argument that I encourage you to fact check before using, the argument that Jesus was dedicated as a child. People say, well, Jesus was dedicated as a child, so why would we not dedicate our kids? Well, be careful if that's where you're going to go. In Luke 2, through 24, Jesus' parents did bring Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And I would encourage you to go to that scripture with some good study Bibles. And as you do, you're going to see that what Jesus' parents were doing was a very specific command. They were offering sacrifices, blood sacrifices, for their firstborn son, which is very different than what we do with um, dedications today. And here's the thing that's even more problematic, if that's a position that you're trying to do to tell someone infant baptism is wrong. If you start down the path of Jewish rituals for infant boys, it's going to bring you to a procedure called circumcision, which we won't go into graphic detail with all the kids here today. But what I do want to point out is circumcision is linked in the Bible to baptism. Take a look at this, Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In Christ also were you circumcised, having been buried with him in what? Baptism, in which you are now raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. Well, here's the thing. If baptism is linked to circumcision and circumcision happens at eight days in the life of a kid, you could unintentionally be making the case for infant baptism instead. Another argument that's not as strong as it sounds on the surface is this one, and that is that Jesus was baptized as an adult. Now, again, that sounds like a really good reason. Well, Jesus set the precedent. But again, when you start to go into the scriptures themselves, it gets problematic because we can see at age 12, Jesus had a strong understanding of who God was and a strong personal faith in him. Then why didn't Jesus get baptized at 12? But even more problematic with that statement is this. Jesus was baptized by who? By John. Jesus was baptized by John. And his baptism was unique. Jason touched on that last week. What we didn't touch on last week was how John's baptism was, was different in this particular way than Christian baptism. Let's take a look at this event as recorded in Acts chapter 19, 1 through 6. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed on through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And Paul said to the disciples, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, well, in what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. In this specific example, we see that people who were baptized by John were later what? 
rebaptized into Jesus. All right, a third argument that's not as strong as, as you may think if you're trying to convince somebody who baptized infants that they're wrong is this, that Jesus never baptized children. The argument goes like this. There's an account recorded in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18 where Jesus blesses the children. He doesn't baptize them. But if you open up to the scriptures and, and go beyond that, you find in John 4, 2, that Jesus himself did not baptize. He didn't baptize anybody. Only his disciples did. So Jesus didn't baptize children, that's true. And he didn't baptize anybody. Well, a fourth argument that I want to point out, because I hear it a lot, when people are trying to say, hey, the only way to do this right is full immersion as a believer, they'll, they'll make this case. They'll say the root word for baptizo, which is bapto, that's the root, means to immerse. They present to you that this is misleading. And this, again, this is an argument I've used before because someone told it to me. I'm like, oh, I better use this too. There are several words. There are several words that the Bible associates with baptism. And some of the words connect back to the Old Testament with sprinkling. Some connect to the old and the new with pouring. And some of the words you refer to washing something. And beyond that, one of my sources said that the word bapto itself, the one that means immerse, is only used two times in the Bible and neither time is it used to talk about baptism. Again, last week, Jason made the case for believer baptism. And I could stand up here and I could make such an enthusiastic case because there, there are strong reasons to go with that, strong ones. You don't need these four. There are strong ones. But my job today is to not just make a case against bad arguments, but to make a biblical case for infant baptism. So here's my best 10-minute shot at doing that. All right, and I'll do my best to avoid arguments that don't fact-check well. Please, um, after the service come up, if there's anything that I um, said that is misleading, call me on that, and I'll, I'll make sure that a retraction comes out probably after I get back from Juarez. Here we go. Infant baptism, number one, connects our story to a much bigger story. The case for infant baptism is really, really hard to make if you only go with the New Testament and only go with the New Testament in English. To make the case for infant baptism you've got to go all the way back in church history because infant baptism ties it all together, especially if you use the Greek language. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul himself quoted from called the Septuagint. If you compare the language there with the language in the New Testament, it's unbelievable how all of this comes together. And that's one of the things that infant baptism does. You have to press into the great mysteries of God's sovereignty and his role in our salvation and how our baptism is part of a much bigger story involving God's covenant promises with his people. Now, someday I hope to circle back to some of these passages because there's going to be a whole lot <laughs> that we can't get to right here. But let me show you just two examples of where the New Testament itself connects back to the Old Testament when it comes to baptism, connecting what's happening now with a, a much bigger story. This is from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 18. And if you get lost in this, it's not just you. It's not just you. This is crazy here. All right, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which somehow, that somehow is just me, 
saying that, which somehow corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even though passages like this are so hard to understand, what we start to see here is baptism is something bigger than an individual's decision to have something that represents an outward um, sign of an inward reality. There's more going on there than that. More going on. Um, in addition to this uh, passage that, that links baptism to the days of Noah, there's also a deep connection between baptism and the events that took place in the days of Moses. Here's a quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul writes, I want you to know that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. These things happened to them as an example, but they're written down for what? For our instruction. The tradition that I grew up in uh, did a really good job of linking baptism to our sacred history. And that's one of the reasons why you'll hear, when we do baptisms, often you'll hear some liturgy that comes from one of these traditions that helps to link some of these things together. So you may, these words may sound familiar if you've been a part of our church for some time. In the beginning, the Spirit of God moved over the waters. By the gift of water, God sustains us and all living things. By the waters of the flood, God condemned the wicked and saved those whom he had chosen, Noah and his family. God led Israel through the waters out of slavery into the freedom of the promised land. When we do an infant baptism, we want to be, be careful. And I would say for all ages, we want to be careful to, to tie this event into the bigger story of God. All right, here's another thing that I believe infant baptism does. And there's a place to write this in your notes too. Baptism, infant baptism, built on the precedent of God extending his grace through families. It builds on the precedence of God extending grace through families. In the Old Testament, God chose Israel to be his own. He said, you're going to be my people. And there was a covenant that was passed down through the families that connected you to this covenant. In the New Testament, Jesus continues this type of thinking when he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. Infant baptism ties us into these, these, these big, big, big themes. When we baptize a child, we embrace baptism, not simply as a symbol, but also as a sign. A sign that God's grace has already been extended to that child because God's grace is coming through parents who brought their child to those waters, drawing them and wondrously working through the sacrament. And this is hard for us because in our 21st century Western lens, we see everything through individual, don't we? That's how we see things, most of us. Most of us see life through the lens of independence and individuality. But for the Jews, family and community were everything to people who grew up memorizing Joshua's great speech, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Those, those are the lenses we have to remember to put on when we look at the scriptures, including this one from Acts chapter 2, 37 through 39, where it says this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, again, Mike, if you could leave this up on the screen, I want to press into this a little bit. Because for me, this, this passage was a game changer when I looked at it again through the eyes of a first century Jewish person hearing it for the first time. Originally, when I wrestled with this passage, it was in seminary. I was at a Baptist seminary and, and I focused at the time on the words, what should we do? The people said, what should we do? And Peter told them what they should do. And what they should do is people who are asking, what should we do? Was to repent and be baptized. And that got me a good grade on that 20-page paper. But where I wasn't challenged at all was to think, not what do I see in this passage, but what would they have heard? And a first century Jew, when they hear this promise is for you and your children, they're hearing this promise is for you and your children. Now, is it possible that Peter was implying to say this promise is for you and your children if when they grow up, they repent and are baptized. It's possible. You could make a case for that. But Peter never said that. So it's an argument from silence. What Peter said was this promise is for you and your children. And as a dad, as I started processing that, this promise is for you and your children, that sunk down deep with me. And if there's even a chance that all those promises of baptism are somehow blessings that could be poured out upon a child, why would I want to withhold that? Especially since they could make a decision later if they wanted to be baptized. Now, I want to press even further into this passage here. On the bottom, it says, these, these, this, these promises here are for you and your children and for all who are far off. And then it says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself. Another thing that I was not challenged to think about at the time was who... Who is it that the Lord calls and how old must you be before he calls you? When I was reading with these things on my mind in my Bible, I, I came across in Galatians, this passage, it jumped out at me. Paul writes this in Galatians 1.15. He said, when he who had set me apart, when? Before I was born. And who called me by his, what? Grace, not my decision, by his Grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. Let's keep pressing into this because this is something that I, I rarely see. I've got tons of books on my shelf and I rarely see um, these things written. I'd encourage you to write this down as we press into this. Infant baptism links grace and faith. Infant baptism links grace and faith. Faith and baptism go hand in hand. But isn't faith itself a gift of grace from God? Again, in the tradition that I grew up in, Martin Luther was teaching people on things like this. He said, I cannot, by my own understanding or effort, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, and sanctified and kept me in the faith. Now, Luther didn't just make that stuff up. His beliefs were grounded in scriptures like this out of Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, which reads, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy spirit, whom he poured out 
on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, quick side note. Here's one of these cases I was talking about earlier where there's imagery that connects this passage to baptism but doesn't use the Greek word baptizo. It uses some of these other words. Now, this is also a place, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up too, as much as I refer to the ESV study Bible all the time, there are places where I disagree with it. And I disagree when they unpack this passage, when they say that that this is symbolic, that what's happening here is symbolic. They could be right, but I challenge them on that. And most of us, many of us, I should say, who baptize our infants, we would challenge that symbolism language. We would use words like sacrament. We would use words like sign. A sacrament means that something isn't just symbolic. We believe, many of us, that God is somehow mysteriously at work, that this is more than symbolic. God is doing something during baptism. We also, many of us, believe that this is a sign, not that as much as we've decided for Christ, but that God has made it possible, and he's called us to himself. And it's God's work that we're celebrating, a sign that God is at work in and through that decision that we made. I found this quote in one of my systematic theology books that I think begs a question. The author writes, Baptism, which is a symbol of beginning the Christian life, should only be given to those who have in fact begun the Christian life. I agree. And I would ask, when does the Christian life begin? Does the Christian life begin when you can articulate a personal faith? I believe there's scriptures that stretch that. Let me show a couple of them to you. When does faith begin? Psalm 22:10. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Psalm 71, 6. From birth, I've relied on you. Matthew 18, 6. This is, these are the words of Jesus. He said, these little ones believe in me. He refers to little ones who believe me. And it even gets crazier. I don't know if this makes any sense, but this last bullet here, Luke also tells the story that Matthew tells. In, 18, uh, in chapter 18. And in Luke's account, Luke uses a word for babies. These babies that believe in me. Now, what does faith look like in the mother's womb? What does faith look like in a baby? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. But what I do know is I've come to trust the scriptures more than I trust my ability to understand them. And so if the Bible says faith is, is somehow at work in, in individuals from birth, then I would say it is. Now, even though I was just now with these, this, my little 10-minute shot here, was able to give you the first few snowflakes on the tip of an iceberg the size of Texas, I hope at least even with this small little glimpse, you can at least appreciate that when, when folks say, I think the Bible speaks to infant baptism, do you understand at least why? You, you don't have to agree with it, but you at least understand that this is, a, this is a belief that is rooted deeply in the scriptures. Well, more than a decade ago, when I asked one of my mentors to share his thoughts regarding whether or not we should baptize our kids, he pointed me down this path. He said this. He said, start by researching the question, what has the church been practicing for 2,000 years? As you do your research, I think you're going to find that the vast majority of Christians throughout the centuries have practiced infant baptism. Adult baptism made its strongest inroad into the Christian community in the 16th century. It takes a certain amount of audacity to say that Christians in the first 16th centuries had messed it up. But thanks to the Reformation, we discovered the truth about baptism. I'm going to take my chances, says my mentor Roger, but, uh, with the heavy hitters in the faith that weighed in on the side of infant baptism. 
Why do you think the Orthodox, Catholics, and Episcopalians, the three churches that can trace their roots all the way back to St. Paul, St. John, and the rest, practice infant baptism? There are those, like Roger, that would argue that this was what the disciples of the disciples passed on to the church. Now, here's a quote that speaks to that. Um, This quote that I'm about to give you is 1,800 years old. 1,800 years old. And the quote reads like this. Baptize first the children. If they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. Now, the reason I bring this up when we're trying to talk about what does the Bible say about baptism is that very early in the church, when people were trying to now connect the dots between the teachings of the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul and James and all these others, one of the things that you saw very early on is when people started to drift outside of the no trespassing boundaries, the the, the people of God, the the church, because it was pretty united at that point, they would say, they would form a creed. And they would say, what you're teaching right now is outside of the teaching of the church. Infant baptism was being practiced very early. And I can't think of a, a single creed that says, hey, you've now stepped outside of what the Bible teaches regarding baptism. All right, the last point I want to make regarding infant baptism is this. Infant baptism is not the end. Can I get an amen? If, if. You think by baptizing an infant, they're good. We're done. That child is rock solid, saved. No more sin is going to come out of this kid. Oh, wow. Wow. Before ascending into heaven, this is where confirmation comes in. Before ascending into heaven, Jesus commissioned his disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. If we are going to be faithful to baptizing an infant or dedicating an infant, then we have a responsibility to mentor those kids in the faith. Isn't that true? Because baptism isn't the end. Dedication isn't the end. All right, so there's my ridiculously short list of why we celebrate when kids or when parents bring their kids forward to be baptized. And here they are all together. Infant baptism connects our story to a much bigger story. Infant baptism builds on the precedent of God extending his grace through families. Infant baptism links grace and faith. Infant baptism isn't the end. And I want to say thank you to those of you who have been listening and hold a different position than this one and who haven't stood up and said, hey, time out. That point that you just made right there, that also applies to believer baptism. If you would have done that, you would have given everybody a spoiler because you can take that infant right off the top of that list, can't you? I could get up here if we had more time and I could go through the same framework and I could use the same framework to make the case for believer baptism. This isn't the framework I would use if I was making the case for believer baptism, but you could make the same case. And that's our whole point in these last two days to demonstrate we don't have to divide if we're going to be a biblical people over this. Because the Bible isn't clear on how much water. The Bible isn't clear on what age. But both of these positions each take deep truths that we can get behind and we can celebrate regarding this wonderful sacrament. I would encourage you, um, if you haven't explored the position that's different than the one you hold, to get into a room where you can talk about these things with others. 
Because there's something powerful about taking the passages that one person highlighted in their Bible and then take the passages that you've highlighted in your Bible and then bring those together and seeing what did you notice? I never saw that before. What did you notice? I never saw that before. I never made a link between this and this and this. And we could actually come away with a richer understanding of baptism or communion or spiritual gifts or end times or all these things that divide us. We could come up with a richer understanding and we could rally around in this case, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And what a beautiful thing that would be in a world as politically polarized as us, where we can't be friends if one of us likes caribou and one of us likes Starbucks. <laughs> Wouldn't it be something if the world could look and say, look at that, these guys, they disagree, but together they go to that Bible of theirs and they use that as their framework to try to resolve their differences. Well, at this time, I want to encourage the worship band to come forward, and we're going to seal this now with a time of Holy Communion, which also was meant to bring us together. And as they come forward, I want to give four invitations. we got four invitations for you. And the first one is for the kids. Kids, where are you? You guys have been awesome today. When we're all done with the service, I want you to pull out one of these green sheets, and you can turn this into a lollipop, and not just any lollipop a ring pop lollipop in assorted flavors. And here's how you do it. On the bottom of every one of these green sheets, there's either the letters RI or the letters NG. If you take your slip of paper and, and you go over to Pastor Dan at the end, he's going to have those ring pops and he's going to tell you how you can take your sheet and you can come together with a friend or somebody else and you put those together, just like we're trying to do with our different opinions here as a church, you can put those together and turn it into something even better. So when we're all done, if it's okay with whoever brought you, you go over to Pastor Dan after the service. That's invitation number one. Invitation number two is this. If you haven't been baptized, let's talk. After the service, connect with Pastor Jason. We're actually talking about trying to have a, possibly a baptism service on kickoff Sunday right out there in the pavilion. How cool would that be? Third invitation. If you have been baptized, I went to a Catholic church once and, and at the back of the Catholic church, there was a dish of water. And I was like, what was that for? What was that for? And I asked somebody and they said, well, that's, that's to when you walk in to the service, you touch the water to reconnect with your baptism. How cool is that? So today we have this, this, this bowl of water here, the same bowl that we use for baptism. You may want today as you come forward for communion, if you've been baptized before, to reconnect with that, those promises that are there, that God can wash us clean, that we're united with Christ, that he wants to pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he was at work even before we knew it, whether it was to lead us to a conversion or whether it was through our parents to connect us to himself. So we have that option for you. And the fourth one invitation we got is to join us at the Lord's table today.